3: You are listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast, and this is Dan Baird's interview with the screenwriter for Tetris, Noah Pink, and my interview with the film's director, John S. Baird. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I played for five minutes. I still see falling blocks in my dreams. It's poetry, art and math, all working in magical synchronicity. It's... It's the perfect game. Tetris. 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 I don't get it. It's a combination of Tetra, Greek for four, and tennis. Tennis. The Russian inventor, he likes tennis. Neasel. Yeah. This game isn't just addictive. It stays with you. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity.
4: Hank, only 10 other people in the world have seen what you're about to see. It's called the Game Boy.
3: Package it with Tetris. Can you get us the rights? The Soviet Union had worldwide rights. Nothing gets out easily. I'm gonna go to Moscow.
4: You're walking into a country that still considers America enemy numero uno. (gasps) Okey dokey.
3: You sure you don't have to talk to your wife about this first? Pioneers have to bet the house to win. But not literally. Listen. Have you ever heard our apartment? this quiet before
2: welcome everyone to the next best picture podcaster we are talking with noah pink the screenwriter of the new film tetris noah how are you doing these days and where are you these days
4: <laughs> i i am well uh i am currently in new york uh yeah. for a very very quick trip um and uh sitting in a hotel room yeah So I apologize for the audio.
2: (laughs) Oh, no need for that at all. Um, Also in New York, I know how the audio can be. (laughs) So the story of how Hank Rogers managed to secure the video game rights for Tetris is crazy, insane, out of this world. I can think of all the adjectives to describe this story but what it gets down to is that this is one of those truth is crazier than fiction things Mm -hmm. Uh, but i don't think most people going into this movie knows just how much stranger it truly ends up being um so i was wondering how did you first hear of this crazy story and um what drew you to writing a film about it
4: Yeah, I I mean, I I first heard this story uh, in 2015. And, you know, as as you said, look, it's, you know, this is on its surface, a story about a guy trying to get the rights to a video game, which, you know, as a pitch kind of sucks. But that being said, I, you know, when I heard it, uh, something inside of me, uh, you know, told me that I, that, that, that there could be a really interesting story here. And so I went off and, uh, did as, you know, as much research as I could, uh, in, in 2015. And, uh, and I found, you know, what, what really convinced me that there, there was a movie here was, was, was less the, you know, the ins and outs of the business dealings, but more, uh, at, at its core, this is like a story of a really interesting friendship.
2: Uh yeah, it is and it, it kind of a surprising story of friendship mm. in a lot of ways, but I think a lot about the scene in the film where Hank finally meets the man who created this game Tetris and they look at the original version that's actually just the brackets and underscores and you know, they get to nerd out a little over the coding and everything. And we watch them in what feels like more or less real time, like literally just change the game to, you know, make sure that all the the lines uh, disappear. If you get them, line them up at the same time when writing this, how did you figure out the right amount of like, legal or video game jargon so that the average person can still understand what's, what's happening.
4: Yeah. It's look, it's, it's always a balance. I mean, you're going to, most people are going to go into this movie having no idea that, you know, the rights to video games are sold territory by territory. And, and there's a difference between selling console rights and arcade rights and handheld rights. Um, it's, you know, so we tried to do a, a a very quick, you know, visual demonstration of what that is at the beginning of the movie it was, you know, it took a lot, honestly, it took months and months and months of going back and forth of like, is this too much or is it too little? Um, do do can we get away with not explaining it? I, I think at the end of the day, you know, when viewers watch this, they'll they'll understand, you know. I think we do a good enough job where people understand like how when you watch this movie, you'll see, you know, you, you'll get the gist of of the mechanics of contract law, I'll say, but it doesn't really matter because like at the end of the day, you know, the scene you just described is, you know, is the crux of the movie. Um, it's, you know, I, before obviously going to, um, going, going to production, I had a lot of very long chats with the real Hank and the real Alexi. And they told me the story, which is the scene you described, uh, of Hank in Alexi's apartment, um, seeing the original iteration of the game and and falling in love with gaming again. It's it's you know, that's that's how Hank described it. He he said he was, you know, so stressed from you know all of the business risks he was taking and all the family stress that he he was at a point in his life where he forgot why he was doing what he was doing and i think we all can relate to that um and and it's that moment where he remembers the importance of play um and it really switches for him and it's it's you know in in and in, in as a writer you know i i really connected to that because you know, trying, you know, you spend years and years writing these screenplays. And to be honest, most of them don't get made. Uh, and it's a lot of ups and downs. And uh, and you have to find joy in the process. Uh, otherwise you just can't do what you do. And um, and so that's I, I really, you know, it was it was kind of a defining moment for me, but also, you know, I think a, a really defining moment for the friendship in the film as well.
2: Yeah. And um, you know, you talk about, you know, he finds that love of of gaming again. Mm. And I think the structuring the film the way you did with different levels and mm. introducing all the different players um is very sort of fun reminder of you know the joy of gaming back to these simple games, you know, when it was kind of new. Was that always your idea to sort of structure it that way? Because like Tetris it's itself, while it has those levels, it doesn't, it's not the way we tend to think of levels in a video game with like a final boss or something like that.
4: Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Um so in the first draft of the script the way it was designed the the you know the breakdown of the script was designed kind of like the gameplay of Tetris actually. So it was like uh I- instead of level 1 it said you know it was like the opening screen of Tetris and it was like one player or two player. And and it was like one, two, one, two, and then it goes to one player because like Hank's going at it alone. <laughs> and it's so it was, it was, you know, it was a little more reflective of of the Tetris game. And I think we found uh, through editing that it was just, you know, on like it didn't matter. We didn't have to be, you know, we didn't have to be faithful to the, the original gameplay of the game. And it was a little more simple just to call it levels. And that was our, you know, our our editor, Colin. Uh who, you know, who really added his spice to it, which which I think really helped because at the end of the day, this movie, look, there's a lot of serious themes in this movie, and there's a lot of stakes, but it's also, you know, we're 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 trying to have fun here, you know, and it's supposed to be a fun, you know, it's about a game,
2: yeah, totally. Um do you think that that was the biggest change from your initial script slash concept to the final product, or was there something else?
4: Oh, I mean, look, I think there, there were a lot of changes, um, um, from, from script to finished, uh, you know, um, I think the, you know, the film clocked in at two and a half hours or so, or maybe two 45, um, in its first cut, um, which was great, but also way too long for All this type right. of movie.
1: <laughs> so,
4: so how do you, you know, how do you cut out 45 minutes? You, you know, it takes, it takes a while. Um, and so, you know, it really meant, you know, finessing. It was really just kind of trying to finesse the beginning and the end. Um, The middle structure mostly stayed the same, but it's, you know, it's a lot of information to get across in the first 10 minutes. And so it was, you know, it was a, Mm. a lot of back and forth on that. That was probably the hardest part.
2: Yeah. Especially since the middle part is mostly like the, I feel like that's the most based on the true story like Mm. these events and you kind of need all of them to get to the end Mm. right was there anything about the real life story that ended up getting cut that particularly captured your imagination
4: interestingly no uh you know the real life story i mean Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's not true. Actually, there is a, there is a large part, um, which, which, which we net, we didn't get cut. It's just, we never shot it. Cause, uh, oh. cause it was, it was, um it was way too out there, but you get a hint of it at the end of the film. um. And this is not really a spoiler, so don't worry, but like, it's, it's the story of, of Atari games, Tengen. Yeah. Uh, and their rivalry with Nintendo, you get flavors of it in this movie, but I had written like a twenty-page, just like complete out of left field, like just like zag. Oh my god! Uh, that goes into the full story of of what Tengen did, and um, and it's fascinating. I mean, they they went out and uh, you know, they they went out and they basically hacked the NES, the Nintendo console, um, so that they could manufacture their own games for the NES. Wow! Because at the time if you wanted to manufacture a game for Nintendo and Hank ran up against this, they charge you as a publisher, they charge you $10 per cartridge. So you're paying Nintendo $10 for every cartridge made. That doesn't include like the sale price. Like you're actually like your input is $10. Wow. And so Nintendo was making buckets of money um, and Atari was very pissed about this. And so they went off and the way they hacked it is, is kind of a crazy story. They basically hired a firm. I believe in Virginia, to sue themselves uh, on behalf of Nintendo. So they, the firm basically walked into the U.S. Patent Office and said, Tengen, Atari TenGen is being sued by Nintendo for patent infringement. And when that happens, the patent office is required to give you the patent to which you infringed on so that's how they stole the patent and they were able to see the coding for the nes and that's how they created these games it's, like it's a full crazy story but it's obviously as you know not in the movie but it's a it's a cool little sidebar
2: oh that's very cool i smell yeah. miniseries yeah exactly uh, <laughs> it's,
4: it's, a, it's the miniseries version <laughs>
2: Um was there anything that you learned while writing this film about video game publishing and distribution rights that you didn't know that particularly surprised you?
4: Oh man, I mean I didn't I didn't I didn't know anything about video game publishing rights, <laughs> uh, if I'm being completely honest.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end. What will I become?
0: Senwa saga. Hellblade 2.
4: Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, you know, it was it was all a learning process for me. I mean, you know, I guess not surprisingly, it was quite similar to, you know, television rights and film rights um but i just had never thought about it that way before so yeah it was it was definitely a deep dive into the legal quagmires of uh you know of 80s video gaming but that being said i think it's you know once you get it it's pretty simple i you know the interesting thing for me i guess what i learned is that a lot of these publishers uh were kind of horse trading uh games they're like i'll give you the rights to this game in Japan if you give me the rights to your game in America and so for like a dollar so people were doing that all the time that obviously didn't make the movie but that happened a lot
2: wow it's like a little if it was a little like the wild west in some way <laughs>
4: oh yeah i mean this was this was the beginning you know it was like it was really the first you know the first 10 years in the 80s were you know uh when video games became mainstream um and you know it was computer games before that obviously but But with the advent of the Game Boy in 89 in America, I mean, that's when it really took off and kind of captured everyone's hearts.
2: Yeah. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask, you know, this movie is about friendship. It's about, you know, legal rights to things. Mm. It's about, you know, going after, you know, the thing that you want if you believe in it so strongly. What do you think is the big thing that you want people to take away from
4: this film? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, at the end of the day, I wanted to kind of write a love story to gaming. And because, you know, play is important um, and we forget that as we grow up, but, you know, play is kind of what makes us human. And I think if there's anything to take away from this, it's really to remind yourself to go out there and have some fun and play. Cause that's, you know, the, that's the best part about living. Well, I couldn't
2: agree with you more on that. And that seems like a good place to end it on. So let, we, that's what uh, we're going to do. Cool. Noah, thank you so much for joining us today. Next best picture podcast. Uh, what can we look forward from you next?
4: Oh, great question. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I am, I <laughs> am. Developing. I have a, I have a couple of features I'm developing uh, and a show at FX I'm developing as well. Um, so, you know, what, what actually comes next, I'm not sure, but hopefully something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, best of luck to you in all those endeavors, and we'll be on the lookout for them. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much, Daniel.
3: This
1: is the inventor of Tetris.
3: Your game is brilliant. I'm going to make you a millionaire.
1: Ah, Mr. Rogers, have you ever negotiated with the Soviets?
3: We're here for Tetris. We've seized this talk
1: what do you say? I don't speak
4: Russian.
0: <laughs> the most powerful man in Germany started Just watching you and your family. Do you know where your husband is? What the hell is going on? The world is changing and Soviet Union will not be left behind.
2: You want to play with the big boys? This is how the world works.
3: Where is my money? This is insane. We can't protect you. Sometimes you gotta forget the rules. Will the the
0: again?
1: This is criminal. The Soviet Union is about to implode. They're
4: lying, everybody's lying. The cavalry is coming. We don't have time. I have a plan. Oh, I see oh come on, you guys are the kings of cliffhangers!
2: Not
3: the bad. John, first of all, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing really well. Thank you. I was very fortunate to see Tetris uh, quite a couple of days ago, actually. And I have to say, you made one hell of an entertaining film, first and foremost. Oh,
1: thank you. Appreciate you saying.
3: Never would have thought in my wildest dreams that the drama behind the making of Tetris was that <laughs> dramatic, to say the least. Yeah, me neither. Right? Me neither. So in talking about the story of Tetris, I actually want to go even further back than when you got the screenplay to when you came on board. I wanna know, what was your first experience with playing the game Tetris?
1: No, I wasn't very good, I have to be honest. Yeah, I I was, uh, I'm not a natural gamer. The games I sort of tend to go towards are more like the FIFA soccer sort of games, the sport games. So Tetris, when it first came out or when I was first aware of it, you know, I liked it, but I wasn't particularly good at it. I'm a lot better now because I've practiced so much Just in case, you know, Hank or Alexei ever challenged me to a game that at least I would obviously not be able to beat them, but at least I wouldn't embarrass myself so much, you know, so so not very good at the beginning, but way better now. That's fair. That's totally fair. And so jumping ahead now
3: to coming on board with the project, understanding the history behind the game. How was the script initially pitched to you? Because when I hear myself, oh, this is about the making of a video game. It doesn't sound like the most exciting story, but yet, but yet.
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, the script actually was originally called Falling Blocks. Yeah, uh, B L O C X, B L O C S, um, and I thought it was a really clever title because obviously hinted at you know falling blocks as in Tetris, but also the 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 dissolution of the of the Soviet Union as well. So I knew even just by the title the the content of, of it was going to be sort of a Cold War thriller as well as something, you know, not just about this particular video game. So it hit my interest on on many levels. And then when I read the story and realized how bizarre a story it was, then I thought, well, I had no idea about this at all. And I'm sure most people out there will have absolutely no idea, unless you're a massive Tetris fan and you you've looked up the sort of whole history behind it. But I think your average person in the street will not have a clue about this. And I thought, if I can create a movie that makes people feel how I felt when I first read the script, then I'm interested. Yeah. And that so it was a challenge as well, you know, because it's quite a it's quite a complicated story and it's you know, it's it's set across this, this uh, you know four or five different countries, and so it was a big challenge to do, and a, and a far bigger budget than I've ever done before. Far more visual effects, and it, it's on a, a totally different level of filmmaking to what I've ever done before. So that was something that that pulled me in, and obviously having the ability to work with Taran and Matthew and these guys uh, again was something that I you know could help raise my game to and 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 try and sort of challenge myself. So. So yeah, it was kind of like a no-brainer, but especially when I read that title, Falling Blocks, I thought, oh, this is really clever, yeah? Really clever, got me in. But it was a great script. Noah's script was really great. I mean, it needed a a tiny bit of work, but all scripts do. But So starting point, we were were in a real real good place.
3: You mentioned a couple of different things there I want to touch upon, one being uh, working on a period film, which you're no stranger to, your last film being Stan and Ollie. But tell me this, what is the one... Element of designing a period film from the ground up that you think most filmmakers underestimate when they embark on such a project?
1: Uh, the, but I think it's, for me, it's always how much it costs to clothe, feed, and transport the background artist, yeah? Mm. That's the big thing. And that's where you, as a filmmaker, you, you, you have to fight... And protect. I worked with Danny Boyle once and he used to always say, make sure you've got enough background, right? You know, people underestimate the background, right? And and they and they dress two or three people in a particular way that okay, they're very iconic 80s. And he said, You'd rather get 20 people and kind of dress them like the 80s, but but because everybody didn't look like Cyndi Lauper in the 80s, right? Okay. You know, so the point being that is is get resort, you know, keep back some resources to, to make sure you've got enough. I mean, obviously now in the age of visual effects, you can you can multiply crowds and stuff. But when you're looking for a, like a, a street scene, when there's 20 or 30 people, it makes such a difference than when you're just using five. So it's like, be smart with the money and, and, and be smart where you're spending your money, but particularly background when it comes to period, because that's the kind of thing that your movie can live or die on. Sure, sure.
3: And in talking about visual effects, were the animated sequences some of the visual effects work the way that you incorporate the kind of old style of uh, that visual look of a video game yeah was that in the screenplay or is that something you all came up with later on and how did you incorporate that
1: yeah that wasn't really i mean noah hinted it hinted to it in the screenplay where it was like player one player two next level game over these kind of things like chapter almost like chapters right yeah but I, I wasn't a really con- when I was shooting the movie I wasn't really concentrating on, I was concentrating on more like the thriller aspect what is the narrative going to be and getting that done because you have you've got ten weeks to shoot you 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 can't concentrate on 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 that th- those chapter stuff until you get your movie together so I did that and then it was only when we came into post that was more driven by especially Matthew Vaughan who was our producer who who was who a lot of that was his idea to push those push those things and. And I think it was an organic process where we we tried little elements and, and some of the characters would come to life. And then it was like, oh, well, we maybe we should do some of the exteriors like that, right? Exterior of Hank's uh, apartment, because we couldn't get to Tokyo to, to shoot that. And we were using archive. And it was like, OK, so, so one idea led to another and another. And I think at one stage, we probably got a little bit too excited and put too much in. And then we said, right, you no, know, that's too much we took out. And then we took too much out. And then we put you know enough back end to so so it was just we were sort of tuning the radio really finely. Old still sorry sounds so old, I thought old analogue radios, you know, tuning them in slow so finely to, to balance up the tone of the movie. <clears throat> but yeah, a lot of the that bit graphic stuff was 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 more was coming, was being driven from Matthew and, and the visual effects guys, yeah. yeah.
3: I like it because it gives the film a very unique sort of yeah. tone, like you were saying. Yeah. helps it stand out a lot. Um, it does. And,
1: it feels unique. For, yeah, because of that. Yeah. And speaking of
3: standing out too, Taron Egerton, I feel like is uh, really showing us constantly with each passing film role, such tremendous range. No character he plays seems to be the same as the last one. And I want to know what qualities in him as an actor you felt were right for this role, because this is a very difficult role to pull off and one that he's never done before.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think one. I think the first thing is 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 I feel is it's probably his best performance to date because he is he show, he's shown another side of what he can do, and a more grounded performance. What makes him so good is he's he's an incredibly intelligent guy, very articulate, very intelligent, and I've always found that those people make make the best actors. Right, cleverest people make make the best actors. Right, those who can act, and. So, and and when you get someone smart, they challenge you as a director, and then it makes you better as a director because you have to come up with the answers. You have to say, well, why are we doing it this way, and you have to justify that and and go through things. thing. So, so he as an actor makes you raise your game as well. But yeah, I was very impressed with his with his work ethic and his professionalism. I have to say, uh, and ultimately the the, the end result.
3: Uh, Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which I think he's he's shown, again something different.
3: Well, now that you've uh, finished completing work on Tetris, it's world premiered South by Southwest. Uh, what is next for you? What is on the horizon? Uh, any? Can you tell us about any future projects you have coming up?
1: Yeah, I'm going to Canada to to do a movie. On Saturday, I flight to Canada to do a movie. Uh, and it's with two of my favorite actors oh. of all time. Wow. And I've just been told I cannot say what it is, which is really frustrating. But I'm sure it will be announced very soon. Uh, But it's a movie in the vein of kind of Little Miss Sunshine. It's that kind of, it's that sort of tone, right? But two of the best, in my opinion. Um, So I'm extremely excited about that. And as soon as I can tell you, I will absolutely tell you.
3: Very exciting. Congratulations on the film once again. And thank you so much for the time here. Really appreciate
1: it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. Take care.
3: Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Dan Baer's interview with the screenwriter for Tetris, Noah Pink, and my interview with the film's director, John S. Baer, here on The Next Best Picture Podcast. Tetris is now available to stream on Apple TV+. You have been listening to The Next Best Picture Podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts.